Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Here we go, here we go. Another episode of Believe in Horse Racing with Ken Rudolph. I am Ken Rudolph. Thank you so much for hanging out with us again. We are on to episode number 10. And this is all courtesy of the good kids at the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. I really appreciate everyone who lately you've been coming in to listen to our discussions, uh, rating and reviewing and subscribing to what we're trying to do here every day. Last four episodes, we, we've been really getting into the topic of, of race and inclusion and diversity in horse racing. That's not all that we're here for. I'm here to do so many other things, but I love it. I love how I did five episodes just talking to people, having fun. Nobody paid attention. We do four episodes on race. All of a sudden, everybody wants to come listen. And then you wonder why everything is about race. Because you don't listen to us, as in black people, until some shit goes down. And then now you want to listen to us and talk to us. Get out of here with that. Let's get back to having some fun. The race thing is never going away. We'll get back to that. But I want to hang out with a friend of mine who was one of my favorite basketball players when he played for the Sacramento Kings. He was funny, larger than life, and he took that thing to other places in his life. And (laughs) he has one of the best Kentucky Derby love stories that you're ever going to hear. His name is Scott Pollard. He went to the University of Kansas, also went and played in the NBA with the Sacramento Kings and eventually won himself a championship ring sitting on the bench for the Boston Celtics. But Samurai Scott is freaking hilarious. We're going to get to that in just one second. Usually we do at the end of the episode, we do a thing called Long Shot Lounge. We're really busy this week. And you know what? The people that I wanted were some really outstanding women who are handicappers. They got busy. They couldn't do it. So I'm not going to replace them. I'm going to wait till they're ready. And when they're ready, we're going to have our uh, women come on and talk, and then I'd love to have them handicap races. Because my whole point about this show is called Believe in Horse Racing. Not your version, not mine. All of it. And all of it includes everybody. Like, everybody can handicap. So I want them to be in here hanging out with me and teaching me a thing or two. Now, since we do not have our Long Shot Lounge, I'm going to give you the horse that you need this weekend right now. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you really ready? Okay, you know it's going to be a price, right? So it's coming up in the Met Mile, Belmont Park on Saturday. Now this jockey riding this horse is like one of my kryptonite. I can't catch him, but I think I'm going to catch him this time. I'm going to go with Joel Rosario aboard Endorsed to run all you busters down from off the pace at a massive price. There, I said it. You're welcome. That's race number nine on Saturday at fourth at uh, Belmont Park on the 4th of July. I'm taking the six endorsed with the smooth operator, my friends call him, Joel Rosario. This would be nice if he came through for me. I'm just saying. All right, enjoy yourselves. Have a great time with all your wagers. But right now, sit back and relax, because trust me, Samurai Scott has the craziest stories you're ever going to want to hear. It's coming up right now on Believe in Horse Racing.
Here we go, everybody. This week on Believe in Horse Racing, everyone knows that I have one favorite basketball team. You've heard this before. It's the Sacramento Kings. So anyone who played for the Sacramento Kings, especially during the greatest show on court era, has a, has a big space in my heart. And if you're massive and hilarious, larger than life, super smart, outgoing, you get a better spot in my heart. The guest coming up right now checks all the boxes. 11-year NBA veteran, including four really important seasons with my Sacramento Kings. It is Samurai. Scott Pollard on the line. Scott, how you doing? I'm doing very well. Don't take away one of my years, though. I was there for five seasons. You count five? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You can, uh, did you get there in 98, or did you get there before that? I got there this, the lockout year, the spring of 99. Uh, okay. So that was my first season with the Kings, and then uh, four more after that. All right, I'm going to go ahead and give you that, because you would know. Five years, and, and I don't know if that was your most productive, but that's definitely the most, I guess, recognized stint in your career. I would say both. It was yeah. the most recognized and, and the most productive. Uh, the, the Kings traded me after I fractured my sacrum, uh, which was the, during the 2002-2003 training camp. I sat out for about four months and came back seemingly healthy, uh, but I think they were concerned about the long-term implications of that injury, and uh, they got rid of me in, in a three-team deal. But, uh, yeah, that's when I became an Indiana Pacer, and not as recognizable out here to, in another small market, and then played with Cleveland for one year and played with Boston for one year and ended up uh, watching that playoff series from the bench as well with uh, re rebuilt ankles. <laughs> yeah, I always wondered for you, because you've done – Almost everything. And I really go back and I look at your time at Kansas. I mean, when you got to Kansas and Roy Williams recruited you, that was an amazing four years for you, including the season where you guys only lost one game and then you eventually would lose when you got to the Sweet 16. And I often wondered with you, which is more disappointing? Losing with that outstanding team at Kansas or 2002 Western Conference Finals against the Lakers, which is more painful? You know, those both of those Band-Aids uh, hurt a whole lot when you rip them off. Um, I, I can't put one above the other. I, I've always just said the worst college experience was not getting a ring for Roy Williams, uh, especially when uh, we had such a storied team in 96-97 with Paul Pierce and Rafe LaFrance, Jacques Vaughn. And I think Rafe, as many accolades as he got in college, I think people forget about that, how, how dominant he was in college uh, because his NBA career didn't live up to the expectations, um, mostly because he had bad knees. I mean, he just had a bad wheel there, and, and he fought through it, but he just wasn't uh, an NBA uh, dynamo like people thought he would be. But uh, So I, I have to separate him. I have to say college is, is one thing, and, and being on that NBA uh, train – that, that was the greatest show on court with the Kings. Um, you know, the, the camaraderie of, of being there for the, that many years, um, that was my fourth year as a, as a player with the, with the Kings, fifth year in the NBA. And it was just uh, heartbreaking that we earned what we earned that year, the best record in the league, home court advantage throughout the playoffs, uh, and then not being able to, to, to get that final piece of the puzzle and, and get to the NBA finals with that team and, and win a championship, which we all felt like was, was right, was correct, was going to happen. Not that we were looking past anybody, just that we felt that good about ourselves and how we had done against the Lakers that year during the regular season 
So I would say they both are, are equal and, and awful. <laughs> right. I, I can't place one above the other. They both fell short of what should have been championship teams. Uh, and, and by far, I believe in my heart that both of those teams were the best team in, the, in their respective league that year, uh, which goes to show you that sports isn't always fair. And that's why people watch. <laughs> right. It's definitely, and you obviously have experience in reality TV with your stand on Survivor, but there's nothing that has more reality than sports. Um, and I just love the fact that you're playing a game and it's a game, but the outcome of that game, so many ramifications, the ripple effect of the outcome goes so far beyond the city that game's being played in. Like, and people who I'm sure Kansas alumni still hurt deep deep in their chest because of that. The same way that Kings fans like myself, man, that, that wound is never gonna go away. Ever, ever, that loss in 2002. It's never gonna get any better. It, well, it never will because until the Kings win one, and, and if they ever win uh, an NBA championship, that's the only time. I mean, the time heals, uh, but when, when time has been passed, and I hate to say this, but time has passed for the Kings, franchise and it, it, they're they're mired in in lack of success i mean there's just hasn't been a playoff team uh since then that's been side you know that's that's happened to to go and and feel like okay this is going to be a team that can can contend and so until that happens and if that ever happens yeah people are going to look back at the 2002 kings as the team the chance we had the team that should have done it uh, because there's nothing else in memory other than failure since. I know. I do have one question that comes from a fan perspective. And I wanna, I'm hoping I can ask this question and I don't uh, <laughs> do it the wrong way. Here's what I see. The Kings team from 2002, we all agree. I think anyone will agree. Even the late, great Kobe Bryant admitted that team was better than the Lakers team that year. Even the late, great Kobe Bryant admitted the Kings should have won that year. But the one thing as a fan that I felt was interesting with the team, and I feel like you're in charge of this, toughness. I felt like you and Doug Christie and Bobby Jackson, three of the toughest players on that team. But my concern or question was, was there enough overall mental toughness on that team to get over the hump? Uh, no, and, and that, that absolutely is the only reason we lost in game seven, because you can say all you want about the series up and uh, up until that point and whether there were you know the people that believe in conspiracies or, or whatever you want to believe about that unlike college the pros all have seven game series to to determine who the best team is so you can have a bad night unlike college in the playoffs uh, where you have a bad night which we did in, in 97 and we lose to the eventual champion the arizona Wildcats, um, which featured Mike Bibby, my teammate on that mm -hmm. 2002 team. So uh, when you when you think back of, okay, physically we knew we were the better team. Emotionally we knew we were the better team going into that series. We had proved we were the better team for three of the games thus far, and three of them we weren't. So it was down to a one-game series. And that is absolutely where your mental toughness needs to come out. And you need to get past all of what's happened up until that point. Doesn't matter that this happened or that happened or whatever you think happened, happened. 
you need to get your mind right and get ready to play and perform at your best level in game seven in front of your home crowd. And so when people say, oh, what about game six? I always say, well, you know what? We had game seven. We earned game seven at home in front of our home crowd. And I don't care what happened up until that point. We crapped the bed in game seven. And that is absolutely mental toughness. That is absolutely us not being able to believe in ourselves enough for one more night in front of our home crowd. We shot terribly from the field. And I say we because it was a team. With never one person can lose or win a game by themselves or a series by themselves. It's always a team effort. Uh, even if it's one play down the stretch, it still was a team effort to get you to that point where it made that one play that important, whether it was a good play or a bad play. Uh, whether it was a good call or a bad call by a referee at the end of the game, it's a team effort. Everybody makes mistakes leading up to that point that where that game or that play isn't a factor. If you had done, done the job early in the series and won it the way we should have, game seven doesn't exist. It never gets played. But we had game seven. We had the ability to play in front of our home crowd, and we crapped the bed because I, we didn't have the mental fortitude to get over – what had happened that far in the, in the series. I'm loving the uh, access and the candor, Scott. I do appreciate it. I'm wondering, when you get to a situation like Survivor, and yes, it is a reality show and it is somewhat controlled, but a lot of it is not. And when you're out there, you're on the island, things are definitely unpleasant. Do you go back and kind of draw upon your experience of, man, I've been through way harder than this. I've been through 97 in Kansas. I've been through 2002. I sat on the end of the bench in 2007 and eight. I've been through worse. I can get through this. Is that how you mentally get through a situation like that? Yeah. Um, I'm laughing because uh, they kept trying to get me to break. For the, for, <laughs> they, wanted, they wanted me to feel awful and be miserable because they love that story arc and you see it every season if you watch survivor the players that end up winning the show the season are the ones that have the mental breakdown and they cry about this and it's so hard and it rains and and they're they, they just they battle back and then they win individual immunity and they love that story arc and they bring in all these other social issues of the time which to me is a complete waste of everyone's ed entertainment. I don't know why Survivor suddenly decided, sorry about this side note, suddenly decided to be people's moral character uh, lesson giver, because it's just ridiculous that they would try to go in and battle these social justice issues. It's a game show. Do you, th do you see contestants on The Price is Right going out there and going, hey, we got equal rights for this or that. Like, come on, it's a game show. So I think that they, they could leave all that social stuff outside of it because I don't think anybody's tuning into Survivor to hear how they should be treating other people fairly. It's a game about stabbing people in the back and it's a game, so let's not forget that. But anyway, back to the original point. Um, <laughs> I, I had a blast. I, there was one day where I overdid it and it was early on. It was, after, I think it was day four or five. It was the first challenge and I overdid it because I hadn't been eating, obviously. Hadn't been drinking enough water because we couldn't get a fire going to boil it. So I was just drinking water right out of the thing, not knowing if it was going to make me sick, which it didn't. And it's, hashtag, it's already treated water. <laughs> <gasps> oh, 
Oh, clutch the pearls. So uh, there's no need to boil it anymore. Nobody does that. Uh, you just drink the water. And so they, they wanted me, they wanted to show me breaking. And the only time that I was broke was not on camera because it happened at medical after the challenge that I overdid it. I told them. I went into medical because you do after every challenge, before and after every one, you go talk to the doctor and you go, okay, I'm feeling all right, or hey, I've got this infection or whatever it is. And they check you out. And I walked in afterwards. I said, hey, I overdid it. I'm dehydrated. I, I'm, I'm in trouble. And they were like, well, can you make it back to camp? I said, I need water. I'm out of water. And they were like, can't give you any water. I said, well, okay, well, then I'm going to get my ass out of here and you better hurry through the rest of people so we can get back to camp so I can get some water. Well, it, it was, we don't know what time it is. We don't know how long it was, but it felt like about 45 minutes or an hour. And they're still running three people through medical because there's still at this point, everyone is on the cast. It's 18 of us. And it takes a while to get through everybody. And I'm sitting there going, uh-oh. And then the producer comes in and goes, everybody okay? I said, nope, I need to go back into medical. I went back in, started walking towards the other medical tent and I passed out. I fell down and uh, hit the ground and all of a sudden water bottles appeared out of everywhere. There were all of a sudden, there's water <laughs> being poured on the, ca the caveman that just fell down in the forest and nobody heard it because the cameras aren't on medical. So that was the one chance they had to show me struggling and I was fine, I just needed water. As soon as they gave me water bottles, I chugged two bottles of water, chugged two more bottles of water and they said, okay, in five minutes, if you're not up and around, and they said, I was, my heart was racing, I was in, you know, I, I went into a stroke a little bit. Mm -hmm. Not a real stroke, but a heat stroke. And they said, five more minutes, and I'm gonna have to pull you from the game. And so I said, give me another bottle of water. I chugged another bottle of water, and I got up, and I walked back to the tent, and we went back to camp. And nobody knew what had happened. They just thought I went back to medical. And so when they tried to get, you know, like they, they couldn't get me to do that again. So the rest of the challenges, I knew where my limit was. I was like, mm, nope, I'm done. <laughs> And you couldn't really tell, but there were times where I just flat out stopped doing what I was supposed to be doing because I knew I didn't want to have that happen. I wasn't going to give them that arc uh, of my storyline uh, of me struggling because I had a blast. Jason and I had an absolute blast. We knew we were going to be cast as villains. As soon as we looked at each other, we were like, well, we're the villains. So we played it up. We had a blast. And people forgot. People were like, oh my God, you're so bitter. You were so mean. And this isn't you. And I was like, yeah, exactly. It's, it's an edited version of me. And that's what people forget to, uh, to understand. And I give this in speeches now. When I, when I speak to businesses, sometimes I use this as, a, as one of the storylines uh, because I think it's important for everyone to remember who they project when they go out in public. Are you projecting in Survivor? Typically three days is edited into one episode, one 40 minutes because 20 minutes of commercials. So you have three days of footage of everybody on the island and they're narrowing all of that three days of footage, 24 hours a day, down into 40 minutes for everyone. So I tell people, you know, don't be, don't, don't let the, the, the 72 hours, the last 72 hours, when you go out in public, don't let your, your image, don't let your projection, don't let other people see you as a bad 40 minutes of your edit. Edit yourself so that when you get out in public, it's your best 40 minutes. When you're out and around and you're in a work situation or when you're in a, uh, a situation when you're in a meeting or, or whatever it is, 
be your best 40 minutes. Be cognizant of, of what you're projecting out there. Are you being positive? Are you supporting other people? Are you giving people compliments? Are you making nice, polite small talk? Or are you talking bad about others? Are you letting the other, those bad 40 minutes, let, let the, don't let the producers edit you in a bad way and make you look like me <laughs> on Survivor. Uh, because again, I knew I was gonna be a villain, so it doesn't bother me because I know what actually happened. I know why I was influential on the jury because people loved me. I got voted out because I was in danger of winning the game. You don't get voted out towards the end of the game if everyone hates you and you have no chance next, and people wanna sit next to somebody that has no chance of winning, but people vote out people that have a chance of winning and that's why I got voted out. And it's because people liked being around me because I'm a funny guy. And I, I was singing, I, that was my number one memory of Survivor was I kept singing and they kept running over to yell at me to shut up because my voice was carrying into wherever testimonial was being filmed or there were other people you know, being filmed. And they're like, hey man, shut up. We can hear you over there. I'm like, hey, you can't silence the cave, man. I'm a singer, that's what I do. And they're like, well, we don't have the rights to Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin. And I was like, all right, fine. So I started making up songs. And they still were trying to yell at me and shut up because they could still hear me singing, even though I was just singing the Cambodian chicken plucking song. <laughs> and, and they just they had a hard time muzzling the caveman. Uh, and I know I'll never be invited back because I had an absolute blast on the show. And they don't, that doesn't make for good television. It doesn't make good television when I'm sitting there, you know, dehydrated, starving and I'm giggling and telling jokes. They don't, they, that doesn't make for good TV. No, so, it does not. I won't be back. <laughs> <laughs> but it's still made for an epic story and an outstanding arc in that show when, when it was on. Um, you know what, I'm wondering, everything that you have had to, to go through, uh, your life has given you a lot of great uh, privileges and an outstanding journey. Which is more difficult? Um, dealing with uh, Kansas and, and the Kings and that situation, watching some of the greatest players from the end of the bench in 2007, 2008, or hanging out with 125,000 of your closest friends at a Kentucky Derby. Which is more difficult? Oh, um, watching, watching any basketball uh, when you're on the team and you're injured and unable to help, that is the worst. That is absolutely, there's no question, that's, that's the more difficult thing. Uh, when you know you can help, you watch and you're seeing situations like, damn it, if I was in there, I know I could do this and that and help us win. And so it was incredibly, incredibly frustrating. Every game I missed, and I probably had a shorter career than I would have had I done a better job of staying out when I needed to, when I should have. I should have stayed out and rehabbed longer in certain situations and probably could have extended my career, but it just wasn't in my mindset I was, hey, as soon as I can limp, I can play. If I can, if I can limp, I can run. And if I can run, I can play basketball. I don't need to jump. I can just run. And, and so uh, I played hurt way too much. And I think it cut my career. Well, I know it cut my career short. I ended up having to get both my ankles rebuilt uh, in, in my last season. And uh, so that ended my career. Awful, awful to sit and watch. Being at a Kentucky Derby? That is a blast. Are you kidding me? That is, there is nothing bad about that. That is all positive. I love it. My thing was um, every time that I would go, because I remember the first couple years, uh, I still work with TVG now, and I started with TVG back in 99, and we went to the Kentucky Derby a couple times, and I remember being 
just overwhelmed. I was like, I don't know if I want to be here with 125,000 of my closest friends trying to go to the bathroom or trying to get to the windows. But aside from the logistics, just the spectacle of it is pretty amazing. Well, it is, it is incredible. And, and, you know, I live in Indiana, so I've been to the Indy 500 uh, pretty much every year I've been here. Um, let me tell you, as far as spectacles, they, they don't compare. The Kentucky Derby is all class, all wonderful, dressed up people with great Southern hospitality and manners in comparison to the madness of the Indy 500. But let's not, we're not talking about the Indy 500, we're talking about the, the Derby. It, it is a, such a spectacle because everybody is in costume, basically. You know, nobody just shows up in a t-shirt and shorts. Now they do in certain sections in the infield and stuff. Maybe there's some people in there. Um, I, I do have to admit, when I've been to the Derby, I do the, uh, the aristocratic uh, <laughs> method of, of attending it. Uh, I, I've been with celebrities and I've been in limos and, and I get dropped off at a certain entrance and get to go up past the, you know, past the line and up into the VIP areas. And so um, my experience of the Derby is absolutely the most, uh, I guess, exclusive that you could probably get. I don't know that there's a better way of, or I'm not, sorry, better. I don't mean that like that. I mean it like uh, more exclusive or- Easier, you know, yeah, it's easier. Yeah. It's, it's easier and it's expensive. <laughs> Those go hand in hand. <laughs> but, how many times um, have you been? Do you recall the years that you went and, uh, and who won? Or if you, if you made a bet and won? Um, I've been to the race twice. Um, first time was in 2000, uh, maybe 2008. I'm not sure. Okay. Um, probably no. It probably wouldn't have been two thousand eight. I think it was earlier than that because I know we were out of the playoffs. I was playing for the Pacers, so it was probably two thousand five or six. And Ooh. if you I, were there for two thousand five, you would remember because that's the year that Giacomo won at fifty to one in two thousand five. That actually rings a bell. Uh, it might be that it was that year, but that's anyway, my horse, Scott, that's my horse. Okay, go ahead. Um, well, I'm just saying it, it like I. It's been 15 years, so, <laughs> <laughs> or so, and, uh, you know, I, I drove down, had no idea what the Derby was like, and so we just drove. It was a two-hour drive from here, where I live in Indiana, so drove down for the race, and everybody's like, where are you staying? I was like, home, and they're like, what do you mean? You're going back home? I was like, yeah. I mean, we had so many invitations from people we were hanging out with. Oh, just come to my house and you can, you can stay over. And we're like, we don't have a change of clothes. Like we, we had just driven down for the race because, um, you know, didn't know that it was a thing that was the whole weekend. Didn't know there was a Kentucky Oaks. Didn't know what that was. Mm -hmm. uh, so didn't know about the spectacle. Just kind of drove down thinking, oh, we'll go down, watch the race, make a couple bets and come back. Uh, and so that's what we did. So it was the, the most memorable part about my, my first experience was that we missed out on almost everything else. <laughs> what? <laughs> because, because all we saw, we didn't even go early for like a lot of the races. We were there basically for like two races, then the big one, and we left. Like we were, we were only there for a couple hours. And so it was, um, it was disappointing because we just missed out on Thursday, Friday. Yeah. You know, all of the things that lead up to it. 
And so, and, and then the after parties too. I mean, like I said, we had people we didn't even know just like, oh, just come to our house. We're having a big party. You can spend the night. We'll find a place for you. I'm like, yep. uh, uh, wow. So it was, it, that, that was my most memorable part about the first one. But the second one was very memorable. <laughs> How so? What happened? Well, the second one was 2013. And uh, I, I had spent a good portion of that winter uh, helping my sister who had been diagnosed with cancer and she's fine. She's alive now okay, uh, still, which is good. good. <laughs> yeah. She's cancer free. Um, but uh, she has three kids and I was uh, spent a good portion of that winter time around her. And I had had a girlfriend I would, I'd had um, and I broke up with her. Uh, but her and I had planned to go to the Derby in 2013. And so I had all the plans, but I didn't have a date. And my sister was like, well, you know, what do you want? And I said, I want Dawn. And she said, well, go get her. And I said, well, I, when I got divorced, she got married. <laughs> and and Dawn, is now, Dawn is now my wife. But Ooh. this is this is what happened. Like, we knew each other uh, when I was married. And then... Um, we would stay apart from each other. We would run into each other and she lived in Denver and I lived wherever I lived, you know, at the time. Uh, and so while I was hanging out with my sister and helping her with the kids and helping her recover and, and, uh, uh we would talk long and, uh, and, and have discussions about, you know, who I wanted to be with. And I just, well, she got married. She goes, just, just go get her. So, I actually, she was a hairstylist in Denver. I booked a, a, uh, an appointment under her, under a fake name in her salon and booked a flight in a hotel to Denver to just go out and see her because I knew that if I just called her, she probably wouldn't answer. She's married, right? And I didn't want to bother her marriage, but I did want to go just at least say hi in a public setting that would, that would make it so it was kind of innocuous, I guess. Well, she saw the num the phone number and she knew it was me. So she called and she was like, don't you dare step foot in my salon. Everybody knows you. <laughs> so, uh, I ended up making a trip and she said, well, what's going on? And I said, well, I, I broke up with my girlfriend and, and I've been taking care of my sister and we caught up about everything in life. And she said, well, I said, how's your marriage going? And she said, it's not that great. You know, we're sleeping in different bedrooms and, and things are, are not great. I said, well, why don't you get divorced and let's get married? And she said, come on, let's, uh, let's think about it. And she's methodical. She, she ponders everything a lot more deeply than I do. I'm a little bit more whimsical with my decisions. Once I make a decision, I'm good. Let's go. Let's get it. Let's stop wasting time. We're going. She thinks about things and analyzes and she's much more intelligent than I am. And so, uh, she said, well, what's going on? I said, well, I'm going to the Derby and I don't have a date. And she's like, well, who are you taking? I said, well, there's, I don't know. I'm just, I guess I'll just find somebody that, that wants to go hang out for the weekend with me. I'm not taking a dude. Uh, and she's like, all right, well, whatever. And then two weeks later, she called me back and she said, no, I'm going. And I said, what about your husband? She said, I'll deal with it. And she had told, Donna told her husband that she was in New York visiting a friend. And actually she went to Louisville to meet me. And the next morning we all are at the same hotel and the celebrities and they're in limo and they're like, Hey, we're walking the red carpet. And I said, well, Don, what do you think? You're married. I'm, I don't care but do you want to walk the red carpet? And to this day, we still, the two of us disagree on what actually happened. I remember it as she said, whatever, let's go. 
And she remembers it as, I didn't know we were walking on the red carpet. I, would, I, I don't think that that was what she was thinking. And I've been on a couple red carpets in my day, but I have never been on a red carpet like that one. I mean, there were literally hundreds and hundreds of cameras. I have never seen that many cameras. I've been to the NBA finals multiple times. I've been to the greatest spectacle in sports racing, which is the Indianapolis 500. But I have never seen that many cameras. Well, we're walking the red carpet and people kept saying, ma'am, lift your hat, lift your hat, because her hat was kind of covering her face. Well, they took the pictures, obviously. We hit the AP. And now I'm just going to fast forward because the, the, the rest of the race was amazing. We had a blast. We made a few bets. We won some. We lost some. Um, came home winners, but not a big dollar amount because we had placed some big bets uh, after we won some money and those didn't work out. So we ended up coming home with money in our pocket, but not a lot. <laughs> we could have come back with more, but I got a little greedy because we won some early ones. Scott, that's every horse player's story. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Nothing new there. So, um, but we had a good time. But the, the important part of the story starts now where um, Don, Don flies home and her husband is waiting with a laptop. Well, Kent, my ex-wife stalked me on the internet, found pictures of me at the Derby with Don, Uh tracked down her husband in Denver and got a hold of him and sent him pictures of us walking on the red carpet. So when she gets home, Don gets home, her husband knows everything. And which was great for me because I was ready to get married and she was not ready to get divorced. <laughs> so it did kind of help to push things along for you. This precipitated it very quickly. <laughs> shower. Things escalated quickly. Yes. So <laughs> the file for divorce was just a couple days later, as opposed to possibly months later. And it really was great for me. I mean, she, she broke up, my ex broke up Don's marriage for me. It was great. There's a time period you can't... Um, you have to wait in Colorado, even if it's an amicable divorce, which it was. Um, she paid him a lot, a lot of money to, to leave. And um, she was still in, under the waiting period. And we were back in Denver having a farewell party because she was moving out to Indiana and uh, in Kansas because I was splitting time between both places at the time. And so we were having a farewell party. And we had to... I, her sisters and mother, I had already asked them for their permission to marry her. And they were like, yes, this is awesome. We love her ex-husband, but we knew it wasn't right. We knew that she'd always really loved you and wanted, and so we're happy this is right. So the problem is I was worried they were going to tell her that I was going to propose. So I ended up speeding up the proposal and she was still legally married to her ex-husband when she said yes to me. And then we, so we had our divorce farewell and engagement party all at the same time. We called it Def Jam 2013. Hell yeah. <laughs> and uh, so that really, that, that 2013, the, the, the Kentucky Derby is our, it, it's, it's our celebration. We celebrate it every year when we, and we haven't even been back since, but we celebrate that date every year because that is the day that we really became a unit and became a couple. And it is a very, very close 
linked to our hearts, the Kentucky Derby. So again, we haven't been back. Just our schedules are crazy and we cannot wait to go back and, and be at the race again, this time as a married couple, uh, the correct way. And, but it, it's an incredibly special event for us because that's where our relationship truly began the right way. Uh, knowing what we did in the past to our, our spouses and our, uh, you know, uh, significant others, families, you know, we didn't do it the right way, but it's right now. And the Kentucky Derby is always going to be special for us. I mean, the picture of the red carpet was the cake topper at our wedding, our wedding cake. We had the picture made into a 3D model. They look like little bobbleheads. That's our, that was our cake topper at our wedding because it's, that's how much it means to us. The Derby is absolutely the germination of my marriage and my, the happiest moments of our lives together are absolutely intertwined in the Kentucky Derby. So the, the race itself was special, but really just the, the entire weekend, the circumstances around that weekend and how we became a, a, a couple out of it is why the Kentucky Derby is always going to be the most special thing uh, that, that, is, that exists in our life. I'm wondering, <clears throat> I love that you use that picture as the cake topper, but I was really wondering, I'm like, do they have the courage or the balls to use that picture as their Christmas card and then send that to your families? <laughs> you know, uh, we would have, but we got married right after Christmas that year. <laughs> like, we, she got divorced, moved out of Colorado, got engaged and got married all in 2013. So... It was a busy year. We didn't really make Christmas cards that year. Yeah. Should have. We should have done that. But then because it was the cake topper, all of our family saw. Uh -huh. And we told them the story. And they were just like, my Mormon family was not exactly as excited and happy about that because they found out the history of me, my infidelity. Yes. And so they, they were not exactly judgmental, but they weren't exactly like, oh, that's such a wonderful story, you know. Yeah. Uh, because of the way it started. But um no, but it, 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 we now, just because we have another, we have a child together now, he's four. Um, awesome. And so our, it, it, we don't leave them out of our Christmas cards. We, 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 we put all the kids on the Christmas card every year and it just wouldn't fit the right uh, theme. I yeah, guess. I get but it. At some point, it's probably going to come back. Maybe the 10 year anniversary. Yeah, 10 year. Exactly, Scott. Of the Derby, the, the 20, 2023. Yeah, you got to bring that back, brother. Yeah, I think maybe that will be the year that we break out the costumes. And, and, uh, but we're, we're hoping that we can make it to the Derby. We were actually really trying to make it this year, and it was looking good. And then, obviously, there is no Derby. <laughs> well, it's just postponed. You have until September. So they're going to run it September the 5th is when they're going to run the Kentucky Derby. Everything's all upside down now. And, yeah. you know, we're just trying to get everything back to some sort of – sense of normalcy, especially as far as sports is concerned. It's like, I hope that we get our seasons back in order and that we can start doing some, some kind of playing. They're looking at uh, trying to get the NBA season up in some kind of a quarantine environment. Do you know anything about that? I know it's, a, it's an awful idea. If I was an owner and I'm paying somebody $30 million a year and they've been sitting out for two months, I'm telling them you're not playing. Period. Why is that? risk of injury you're not in nba shape anymore no way no way not without not without a training camp and a, and several 
really good practice games under their belt? Am I letting any of my big time players that are big money guys out on that court to risk injury for whatever is going to be, whether they play the last five games or six games and, and the playoffs, or if they just do the playoffs, I'm not letting Steph Curry go out there and play and risk injury for this season. I'm, I'm shutting down my big, my big money guys. I, there's no way I, I lived through the lockout in 1999 and guys came back out of shape and hurt and people got hurt left and right. People were overweight. People were just not in NBA shape. There's no substitute for being in NBA shape. That's why we have training camp. That's why we have preseason is to get guys in NBA shape. And there's just not, there's no way it's going to be uh, realistic to, to expect people to be in NBA shape right now. And then you're going to have a playoff. If I'm if I'm an owner, I'm I'm 100% against it. Now I get it. Teams got to make money. Teams are trying to recoup money and at least get some TV revenue. And so I understand that part of it. Um, I'm just saying, like, okay, how do I work this and and look at my future as an owner and as a GM and as a head coach? I'm I'm saying, all right, my my big money guys are either not playing at all or they're playing very limited minutes until they prove that they're in great shape. And I know that's a catch 22 and how do you get in shape unless you play, but knowing what I know from, from the lockout year in 99, it's just a dumb idea to try to rush into something and try to get players that are not in shape. You're not in NBA game shape right now. Nobody is. It doesn't matter what they've been doing in the offseason, what during this break, nobody's in game shape right now. And to rush them back in is, is a recipe for disaster. From the player's perspective, I totally understand that. From a fan perspective, we would counter by saying, well, in the preseason, whether especially in football and basketball, the stars don't play that much anyway. Especially, I know in football and basketball are different, but in football, you see your starters maybe two full games. Maybe you see four quarters of play in four weeks from your starters in the NFL. Preseason basketball, I see LeBron play a quarter and a half, if that. And, how, much and, time, how much time do they need to get ready? That, that long, four weeks, and they don't have it. Okay. They, don't, they need four weeks. You need a month to get in shape and into, into NBA shape. I'll, I'll keep it about NBA. Yes, sir. You need a month. And so they don't have a month. They're going to they're gonna try to have a 10-day or a two-week training camp and then go playoffs? Uh, you know, yeah, in the preseason, you can play a quarter, uh, play, a, play a LeBron for a quarter and get away with it because the game doesn't count. This is the playoffs. It counts. It counts more than the regular season. So you, you can't just go, okay, yeah, we're going to ease LeBron into the lineup. We're going to ease Steph Curry back into the lineup. We're going to ease the big money guys back in the lineup. No, no, you can't. It's the playoffs. So that's why it's even more of an ownership decision. It's like, okay, are we really going to let him play 48 minutes and, and risk injury? And because – Again, no one is in basketball shape. Nobody. I don't care if you've been having secret practices, which is the rumor about LeBron, that he's been having secret practices with his teammates out in L.A. I don't care. You're still not in NBA game shape. And I would – I just don't want to see the best players in the world risking injury and potentially getting injured so that they can scramble and do some kind of weird quarantine-style playoff. I, I just – I get it. I get it from the money perspective. But from the fan perspective, do you want to see LeBron go out and tragically get injured because they, they wanted to somehow uh, 
get a playoff in to determine a, a, an asterisk champion. Doesn't matter who wins. It's not going to count. Nobody's going to respect it. You didn't finish the season, and then it's a, a weird playoff. It's still going to be an asterisk. Yeah, that is true. Man, I didn't even think about the fact they do need four weeks to get ready. Yeah, that totally makes sense, man. I don't use this term very often, but I will today. Uh, that was some very delicious tea that I drank <laughs> all of it. <laughs> I drank it all up. <laughs> Samurai Scott Pollard, man, thank you so much for your time. I got to tell you, you're always going to be important to me because you were part of the greatest show on court. That's my home. That's my team, the Sacramento Kings. And you're just a good dude. And your Kentucky Derby love story is one for the ages. Thank you so much, brother. I appreciate you. Thank you for having me on, Ken. Anytime, brother. And that's going to do it for this episode of Believe in Horse Racing with Ken Rudolph. Really appreciate y'all hanging out here with us again. I want to thank our good buddy there, Scott Pollard, for all the crazy stories. And I thank you for hanging out with us here on the Believe Podcast Network. Continue to subscribe, rate, and review these shows, and we will keep it pushing. Doing something different every single week. You have no idea what's going to happen next week. Got to be here to find out. All right, we'll see you next time. Let's get this money together. Peace. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.